Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Tank Nuts, sponsored by the online multiplayer PC game World of Tanks. My guest today is a former Royal Tank Regiment officer, now Managing Director of Bear Arms, military support to film and TV. It's Mr. Ben Simmons. Hiya, Ben. How are you? Uh, hello, Richard. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. How are you coping in the current climate? Yeah, not too bad. It's been... It's been interesting, actually. It's been a strange year. Um, it's been part of it's been quite a nice break because running your own company, you don't really get any downtime. So this has sort of been forced downtime, which has been quite nice. Um, work last year, the cinemas and film and TV production ground to a halt uh, around about March time. Getting it to come back within a few weeks. But it it was it would it was around around about September when things started to come back. So I had a had a summer off, which was quite nice. Um, but yeah, just about surviving, finding different ways to work. Loads of Zoom calls, but you know, you, you make me feel really everybody. guilty because uh, for those that can't see, you're actually sat in a, a a fantastic sound booth. It makes me feel really bad as I'm just sat in the office at the desk. <laughs> well, it was um, it was a bit of a lockdown project during the first lockdown. Um, my my girlfriend and I. Um, first lockdown in March last year was sort of taking stock about what the next year was likely to bring and how we could best prepare ourselves for it. And she's an actress, um, predominantly doing stage work. And so we figured a lot of her work would dry up. She had been wanting to get into voiceovers and voice acting for a while. And she's very good at doing any kind of accents. And so we, but the problem was she lives on quite a loud road and has paper thin walls. And so it's how can we produce a space where she can record stuff? And so it started like small, let's produce some, some collapsible walls that we can put in the corner of a room and maybe put a duvet over. And then very quickly, <laughs> as all good, good ideas are, I kind of got, got slightly ahead of myself and we, decided to build a great big structure in the garden so we built a sort of soundproof shed and then we've got a soundproof booth in the shed oh wow that's in the garden oh wow. yeah yeah it's in the garden yeah so it's at the bo bottom of the garden it's quite sweet we found i found a, a little round porthole window so it's got a little round window in it i made things very difficult for myself <laughs> uh and um uh and yeah it's it's quite nice in here it's quite there's enough room but it it was one of those things where i gave her the option of we can either spend the try and spend the money and get somebody professional in to build it. We can get a flat pack shed for about 500, 600 pounds off the internet, but it'll be rubbish and will fall down pretty quickly. <laughs> or the third option is I can build you one. And I gave her the option knowing that she wouldn't pick that. And she did pick that. <laughs> so I then, had to, I then had to pull it out of my ass and actually create the thing. So, um, uh, spent a couple of weeks researching sheds and structures and soundproof soundproofing on the internet and uh, yeah it's great because you can find anything you like out on the internet and so became a, a sort of a builder overnight and bought the tools and we just got cracking and yeah there was I was really concerned about the the booth itself was something that we bought it was professionally bought I was really concerned about the size of it because it's quite tall and planning restrictions mean that your structure is, is got to be limited in um, height it got to the point where we got we bought um, some carpet for the shed 
and I had the choice of whether or not to put the carpet in and then the booth in. And the booth hadn't arrived by that point. Carpet and then booth, or put the booth in and then put a, a, a carpet around the bits that the booth didn't sit on. And I was that concerned about the amount of clearance I had to fit this thing in here that I decided not to put the carpet down because of the couple of mills that it would have given the extra height. And I was absolutely right not to because I had clear clearance of literally about two mills around the roof. So, uh, yeah, it was it was touch and go. <laughs> it was touch and go. But, yeah, it was well worth it. Kept I'm just, super, uh, kept super impressed. I am super impressed. So, Ben, uh, RTR then, the Royal Tank Regiment. What um, mm. what possessed you to want to join the Royal Tank Regiment then? Was it always the army was always on your mind and uh, the RTR came later or...? Very much so. So the um, I, when I was thinking about joining the army, when I was at school, I was part of the cadets, and I was must have been about sixteen, seventeen, um, and the twin towers happened. So I'd already already been considering the army at that point as one of my career options. And um, and then that happened, which which as we know changed everything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of put me on the path to joining the army. It was it was so bizarre and so surreal. I was reading a Tom Clancy book at the time, where terrorists fly planes into the Pentagon, and it was it was remarkable. I was re- I was holding the book at, at the time when yeah. I found out that it happened. I was I was I was on a school trip. And I happened to be reading the book when we all found out. I was like, this is a plot from a, a film. It's really bizarre. And then I went off to university. And while I was at university, um, the 7-7 bombings happened in London. And so all of this was sort of leading me to towards a view that 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 things were were going wrong. And um my my uncle um was in the army uh and Obviously, both both my granddads were as as everyone's were, um, and uh, and so I, yeah, I that was the point where I thought, right, I've 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 got to do something personally. I remember talking to my friends about it, having some quite um, liberal <laughs> friends who were thinking, you know, why why the hell are you off to join the army? Don't they all kill babies? And my view at the time was was, was no, if 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 we'd don't do something then whatever's happening here in the uk is going to get a lot worse that was my that was my thoughts about it at the time so i joined up very much in the sort of the afghan era iraq was starting to sort of uh die down it was a very weird time when both of them were quite heightened and a lot of stuff was happening so uh, so that's what made me decide to join the army i've always been fascinated by machines any kind of machines as a kid i was always taking things apart um, not putting them back together quite as successfully as I was at taking them <laughs> apart. Uh, RTR officer, there you go. Exactly, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> as uh, as a teenager, I I worked at a go kart track fixing the carts, uh, and so I love engines, love anything to do with engines, and um, I was going to join the Gunners because I didn't know about the RTR. I was fascinated by tanks, loved the tanks, but didn't really see myself joining the cavalry. I couldn't really see myself as a good fit there. That wasn't, it didn't really seem the people who I'd met who were thinking of joining and it just didn't seem like my kind of a world. And 
the careers officer, I was about to go to Sandhurst and the careers officer rang me up and said, see, you're about to start Sandhurst. I see that you've only been to visit a couple of regiments. Most of them are gunners. Have, have you considered anything else or, or any other roles? And it was the way that he phrased the question that made me say, well, yeah, I have considered tanks and the armoured corps, but I don't think I'd fit into the cavalry. And he said, have you considered the RTR? And I said, what's the RTR? I'd never heard of them. And uh, sent me on a visit down to Bovington. And I was like, yes, this is this is exactly what I want to be doing. And uh, met with uh, with with Auntie John, who was the uh, regimental secretary at the time. And uh, and yeah, and from then on in, I was like, that's what I want to do. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you say about uh, reasons, I always get asked reasons why people join the army. And it's so varied, isn't it? With... Like you mentioned, obviously, about your time, it was uh, like just the end of Iraq and that sort of thing, Afghanistan. Mm. For me, it was in the peak of Northern Ireland and all the troubles over there. So my my first tour, believe it or not, was not on a tank or anything. I was on the streets of uh, Belfast on my very first mm. tour. So, but yeah, fascinating why people join. And I do feel, do you, do you feel that the, because um, funny enough, not so long ago, I was talking to um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, funny enough, who's involved in recruiting. And the way that the army's recruited has changed so much, even just over our sort of, you know, like very short periods, there are short mm. lifetimes. Um, for me, I always, <laughs> the, the adverts, they were talking about the advertisements and the current ones and mm. the, you know, the ones they had not so long ago that didn't go down so well, but we won't talk about that. But for me, it was Frank. And it yeah, was, Frank, um, I, yeah, yeah Frank, I mean, the, yeah. the best recruiting driver I think the army ever had where I joined, I, I honestly thought when I joined the army that we all we would do is venture training, skiing, you know, <laughs> Going to visit hot countries or something. How wrong was I? They lied to you. They lied and to you. And then 12 months later, I was on the streets of Belfast. Yeah, so it's yeah that lovely, hot, sunny climate. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think each generation has got their own sort of Frank type thing that, that makes them join. And for my generation, it was very much, um, I could always see there were two kinds of people. With Certainly within the officers, there were those kinds of people that wanted to go off and do something while in their 20s before starting a different career something behind a desk perhaps they wanted mm -hmm. something that they could be be proud of something that they they'd served and they'd they'd had a reason for living something like that and then there and then there were those that, that sort of wanted it more as a career um i went into it initially wanted a career and then um slowly realized that probably the upper echelons of command weren't gonna be for me uh but i i think the the one of the problems that army recruiting has always had is changing the message quickly enough so when when iraq and afghanistan started to draw down and less and less people were going away on operational tours the message didn't change quickly enough back to okay, this, this can be a career. And so a lot of the people that they were relying on recruiting, who are the people who were going to join up for three or four years, go off and do something exciting, then then switch and do something else, weren't joining because there wasn't that exciting pull for them. So they needed to switch back to not necessarily dull, but the traditional, right, this is a career, this is a good career mm. for you. And I think, um, I think the military always struggles when times are good trying to recruit people actually when 
when things are less good in terms of uh, the situation in the nation, when things are less good, it's a lot easier because people often consider a career in the military a good start in life. Um, public perception with the is always a tricky one. Certainly when Iraq and Afghanistan were going, there was very much a tangible view that the military were doing something worthwhile and mm. and and that anybody going to join it was doing a good thing. I think that's come in ebbs and flows and there's always a pendulum swing. Um, it is difficult when the military's in the news for bad things for 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 people to consider joining up. We always called it the mother test. Would somebody's mother watching on news and the tv would they let their son or daughter go and join up um depending on what was happening at the time um but yeah so i think i think i think it's um always going to be a bit of a struggle and when there's less people in the military it makes it more difficult for to do all the kinds of stuff that attract people to the military so it becomes a bit of a a never-ending problem but um it's been in the news recently but um there's yeah it's tricky to know also when it's a different generation coming in behind you how to appeal to them because most people are focused on well that's why i joined why are these people not joining but they've missed it entirely they're a new generation they respond to completely different things and it's yeah it i yeah be it'd be it's interesting to see why people these days join compared to why people join when we joined. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, um, only this morning, and I'm, I'm sure he'd kill me for saying this, but my uh, my little boy, he's not so little now, mid twenties, he's um, he's joining the Royal Marines, so he's about to. Um, right. He's, he's about to go off in uh, two weeks, actually, to start basic oh. training. So, so he had his good medical. Good luck to had him. Yeah, his, his medical this morning. Yeah, I know we've had many conversations, but for him, isn't it funny? For him, he was he was doing gardening before, and he can never mm. see himself doing something like that. It was always, I think, going back to probably even my era, I want something is you know. A bit of variety i want um, some adventure to a degree mm. um travel and all the rest of it but anyway i may be um tempting fate by mentioning that he's he's going in the marines because he's got to get through basic training and everything yes <laughs> good good luck to him good luck to him so, he, he keeps asking me yeah. about well, what, what you do in basic training dad and i like i have no idea son it's a totally different world to me navy yeah. i know nothing about so all i can do is wish you the best of luck <laughs> <laughs> yeah just the knuckle down yeah that's that's yeah exactly yeah 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 um so what were your what's your recollection of um sandhurst then ben sort of the fondest memories the not so fond memory. <laughs> fond, fond memories uh few and far between sandhurst is interesting and i've and uh it's it's strange because it's got a it's got a very good reputation certainly throughout the world for producing producing officers of of the best best sort of top tier um unfortunately the one the one thing that i found that officer training he prepared you for or never never really um trained you for is dealing with troops dealing with soldiers which is one of the most important parts of the job and that you have to learn entirely on the job and some people get it massively wrong some people are brilliant at it but that that is the getting the best out of your soldiers is something you're never ever taught and never exposed to and i distinctly remember within a couple of weeks being on ranges in wales and one of my brand new troopers 
coming up to me and saying, um, boss, I've got a bit of a problem. And me thinking, okay, what's this going to be? You know, we've, we, we had like some very brief scenario training at Sandhurst where an actor comes in and pretends to be a soldier <laughs> and you, and you talk through the problems as like, okay, what's it, what's this likely to be? Which one of the three scenarios we practice for will this be? And he dropped his trousers, took out his penis and went, is it supposed to look like this? <laughs> and my first instinct was, this is a joke to wind up the new troop leader. And I looked down at it and it wasn't in a good shape. <laughs> it was clearly he hadn't been, he'd been putting it somewhere where he shouldn't have been. And so I said, no, I'm fairly sure that's not supposed to look like that. Go and have a chat with the medic. He's sat over there. Uh, but nothing ever prepares you for that. But dealing with soldiers is one of the one of the best bits about being an army officer, without a shadow of a doubt. And that's why so many people as officers leave when they get um, slightly higher in ranks, because you just don't have the same day to day contact with soldiers. And that and that's the best bit. They can be absolute bastards, but they are also brilliant. And so so Santos, unfortunately, just does, doesn't prepare you for it. It teaches you how to do a platoon attack with 30 other young officers. And it teaches you how to wrap yourself when you're running out of energy it teaches you how to be a bit robust but it doesn't i feel personally it doesn't prepare you for soldiers yeah. sandhurst itself is is a bit of an endurance it's it's a year long which isn't that bad um and some of it you just got to knuckle down and, and get through some of some of the lessons you learn from it are good for instance i i got incredibly frustrated with nonsense rules there was one rule in particular that always got me and that was that your bin has to always be empty <laughs> and i was like and i was trying to have i was trying to bless him i was trying to have the conversation i've never heard with, that before i've never yeah, heard that before your bin yeah. always has has to be empty so i was i was i was trying to my my thing is always to to try and reason with people maybe argue with logic and so i had this color sergeant who color sergeant jones i don't know where he is now but wonderful bloke and trying to debate with him is like, but what's the point in having a bin if the bin is always empty? Where am I supposed to put my rubbish? And you could see him, you can see him kind of agreeing, but also just wanting me to shut up and go away. And so, so every time there was any kind of inspection, all I would do is I'd keep my bottom drawer of my desk empty. So anytime there was inspection or an inspection was called, I'd pull open the bottom drawer, empty out the bin, close the drawer, lock the drawer, put the bin down. So my bin was always empty, but so... So Sandhurst for me was all about finding ways to get around the rules rather than rather than obeying them. But it's it means different things to different people. I do I have I a couple a, sort of during lockdown sort of is weird. I I kept having had it sort of a reoccurring dream about four or five times. And I've never had it before or since, but for about a week, I kept dreaming that I was being sent back to Sandhurst. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, please, no. It's not, it's not particularly tough. It's not particularly hard. It's just, um, it's just long. And you, yeah. and from Sandhurst, of course, you then go off and do your specific tank trade training. I mean, yeah. how did you, did you find that a, a massive difference to Sandhurst um, or more interesting, less interesting? More interesting, certainly. I love, I love tanks. I love playing around with tanks. I love the driving. I love, I've loved the gunnery. I, that was that by far and far and away the most fun training course I've ever done is the, the tank course. Um, it's interesting because you are with all the other armor corps officers and there's a, there's a, there's a massive, um, 
variation in where people have come from who they are how they mm. operate and um and the and how seriously they're taking the course dare i say it and um and so it's yeah it's it's a remarkable course i think um now i think i could be completely wrong and one of my friends is probably gonna pull me up for this now i think they do the commander's course with the junior ncos as well i think they do it combined i'm not entirely sure i could yeah be wrong, well i was a, like, might, yeah I was, I was a tactics instructor at warminster for a couple of years so uh, yeah. we, even then we were doing officers and mixed with uh, junior ncos yeah. and things which i think tactics, is a great idea i think it's a really good idea yeah, yeah. absolutely um but no, absolutely loved it. Um, I like living down in that part of the country, living down near Lulworth, and yeah, it's beautiful. Spending summers down there, it's great. Yeah, idyllic times. So here, I had a question from somebody actually too, mm. that they wanted to put to you. So, if you were not an officer, what trade was your favourite? So, if you out of all gunnery, obviously gunnery loading, etc., commanding, which one enjoyed the most? Hmm. Each of them has got their benefits, and it's a bit diplomatic answer there. Yeah, so <laughs> driving's great fun because being a driver, brilliant. Um, getting to bomb around. Um, the issue is that you're probably one of the most vulnerable people in the tank because you're right at the front. You're separated from the rest of the crew. Always, always, all the horror stories I heard of, of tanks going underwater and being trapped. The, the drama was always trying to get the driver out. Um, but also, if you're just doing gunnery training, you know, the driver doesn't really have a lot to do if you're doing static stuff. So it, it can be a bit dull. Numerous stories of drivers falling asleep because they've not moved in an hour and a half. And so having to having to crawl down under the gun and wake them up. Um, so... So, so driving's fun. Gunnery is probably the most technically difficult, but then the 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 problem you have with it is you're you're stuck. You're the only one of the crew that doesn't have their own their own hatch, and you are you are sat in front of the commander, and you're in this tiny Tetris shape human slot that you have to fit into. And I felt I felt so sorry for the gunners going cross country because they must have got so sick. Um, but the actual job of gunnery is 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 a is a really fun job. The operator is like the mum of the tank. They do they do everything. They make the brews. They've got the most room. They can stand up. They can. They've got their own hatch. So operating is is fun as well commanding is always there's always something you're always doing at least two jobs at once you've always got your hair on fire you're always i I love there's a there's a quotation down at the gunnery school which is from a tank commander in world war ii and i can't remember the exact quotation but it's something like i'm i'm trying i'm trying to speak into the i'm trying to speak on the intercom to get the driver to to reverse the driver can't hear me because I'm talking on the A set. I'm receiving orders on the B set. <laughs> there's there's 10, 10 enemy tanks have just appeared over the brow of the hill, and my operator hands me a cheese sack. Like this is that's that's that it's perfectly describes the chaos that goes on as a commander when you're especially as a as as a commander trying to 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 lead multiple vehicles. It, you are you're dealing with about three or four different things at the same time and i've seen people 
like completely lose track of things just because they can't possibly focus on that number of things at once. But when it's going right, commanding is really rewarding when everything is working properly. So if I wasn't an officer, I would I would definitely still be in the tanks uh, and I'd like to do all of the positions. But um, but yeah, I think, I think it's difficult. It's really hard because commanding is probably the most rewarding. Yeah. No, I, I'm totally with you. I mean, obviously it was slightly different. I did, you know, yeah. I did my first, I was trained, I did junior leaders. So it makes me feel so old, Ben, talking to you, because we're going back so far, aren't we, for me? So junior, junior leaders, Royal Army Corps, which was 18 months, but it was all a bit different then. Yeah. And um, I started off as a gunner, and you're right. I, I mean, love the job on ranges and everything. Exercise, nightmare. Dreadful. just yeah. Dog's body, kicked to the back of the head all the time, and uh, awful. I did a couple of years driving, which you're quite right. Best position from a point of view of sleeping on the tank. Um, <laughs> and that was about it. I mean, other than that, but the main, I mean, don't forget, I was on, I was on Chieftain as well, which, um, you know, it was, everybody jokes about Chieftain and how unreliable it was. And, you know, it's quite true. And I was just always covered in oil and the vehicle was always breaking down and you're always track bashing, which is, mm. but yeah, but you're quite right. And when you reach up those dizzy heights of the commander, it's, um, it's fantastic. Yeah, really, really good. The, the other advantage of being the commander is if you do want to have a, uh, the gunning, you can just yeah, snatch yeah, it off yeah, the gunner. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you get the best of both worlds. So you get a, a peachy shot if you really want to. If you really want to snatch his toys, yeah. What, what was your opinion then of Challenger Two uh, as a tank? Loved it. Um, I mean, the only the only problems that, or the the only downside was not having any, an independent TI um, for the commander because uh, you only had the uh, uh, the one slave to the gun and the ti was a little bit old so it was um so you didn't get a great picture um so um so yeah for those of you that don't, don't understand anything i've just said um the challenger 2 and modern main battle tanks work off the principle of a hunter killer uh, which means that the the gunner's sights are attached to the gun so so everywhere the gunner looks the gun goes the commander has an independent sight so he can hunt for the next target so whilst the gunner's engaging one target the commander's looking for the next thing and he can snap the gunner onto the next a target so you're literally bouncing from targeting to to killing targeting and when it works really well when the commander and the gunner are working well together it's a really slick system there's nothing better than a tank crew working well together and everybody just doing their jobs problem being when it gets to night time um there is only one thermal site and that's on the gunner's site so you can't do that hunter killer mode at night and the thermal imaging that challenger 2 has it's being upgraded but the um the one the one that we've we've had for the last few years is sort of the original one and it's it's showing its age now there are it still works of course but there are much better ones out there so that's the the uh the the one drawback at the moment um think yourself but, lucky ben i started with a spotlight on chieftain so uh, you can imagine <laughs> you can imagine trying to engage it was, it was dreadful on the range period i mean we all used to cheat on ranges because you, you cannot see anything with this spotlight it was just ridiculous so <laughs> before it got dark you used to actually lay on to the target so all you Very did was fire, but anyway sorry go on. mark down the turret clever i like it that's that's what i'm saying about scientists finding ways to get around these these uh these little problems yeah um one one thing that i will always wish that that we'd had a chance to use there's there was the the tank phone on the back of the tank for infantry to talk to i you know n- never had a tank that actually had it and had it working 
um but it would have been really useful it would have been one uh so working on my first tour in afghanistan we we're on um, mastiffs and having a troop phone to talk to the troops outside would have been so helpful otherwise we had to either stick our head out the back because the front doors were welded up so you only had two options the back or the roof so you had to stick your head out and try and find where where the troops were inevitably being shot at so it was always a bit of a risky business <laughs> but having having a little phone to be able to talk to the people outside um would have been so useful um but we didn't really get a chance to work with the infantry much when using tanks um mainly because the focus at that point was on dismount dismounted stuff for afghanistan so uh yeah. but um but overall a brilliant platform um and so smooth when driving around uh, I had um, there's something I, I I call the CVRT fear. I went from Challenger Two to um, CVRT in Canada. I was playing the the enemy for an exercise, and the difference in in a Challenger Two thundering across across open country, and you see a dip, and it doesn't matter because the tank just the hydro gas suspension just works beautifully, and the tank yeah. the, like there's no such thing as a like a big bump cross over onto cvrt and suddenly every bump just sends you flying like knocks your teeth out and so you you you're thundering along the plane at top speed and you see a slight bump and everybody has to brace and just take the impact as you go shuddering through like a tiny little <laughs> depression or a dip then going back onto tanks thundering across the plane seeing a dip and your cvrt brain goes no and you just glide over it and it's yeah <laughs> that that getting that fear out of, of of bumps was quite it took a while but um but yeah overall brilliant platform um yeah would have loved to have spent more time on it but i consider myself uh fairly lucky there were some of my troop leader a cohort that because of the jobs they did um other than their initial tank training they never touched it they went on to other platforms and uh, never went back onto it. So you, you mentioned Afghanistan. What was um, mm. running through your mind before the, the first tour? It was interesting because the training, although brilliant, the training makes you paranoid. The training makes you assume that, and it, it must have been the same for you with Northern Ireland, although um, dealing with a population that doesn't look like you is always, mm. always it, it sort of heightens it you're paranoid that everybody's out to get you, that everybody's a baddie. And so um, I remember driving out the gate with my troop for the first time. I'd, I'd already been there a few days um, to get the lie of the land. So I'd sort of, sort of tuned into it a little bit and I knew what was outside the gate. But driving out that gate, the driver I was with was visibly nervous because he didn't know what to expect on the other side. When those two big gates opened, what was on the other side of it and what kind of people we'd be facing. And so the first, first before you go out there, you, you sort of think that everybody's a baddie and everybody's going to take a pop shot at you. If you like tanks and everything tank related, check out World of Tanks, a multiplayer tactical shooter on PC with over 600 historically accurate tanks. Go to worldoftanks.com slash tanknuts and claim your exclusive starter kit, which includes the iconic Matilda Black Prince, plus the opportunity to command the famous T-34-85 and also a host of other rewards. You can also share the invite code TANKNUTS 
with your friends. I suppose we had to say, because I was in the Gulf War, and I think that's probably mm. the, the similar one for my generation was that. But then a massive difference, of course. We went, you know, we were on tanks. You, we stayed on you, tanks, were, an so we did. you were in an actual war as well. Whereas, yeah. whereas we were we were in a weird sort of hybrid of peacekeeping until stuff happened, and then it went for a war. Yeah, temporarily. but I, I think that all, almost makes it more more terrifying, to be honest, because it was all a bit uncertainty about Afghanistan, wasn't it? It was like you say, it's sort of yeah. a you're not sure politically from the political standpoint of what's going yeah. on, and uh, mm. like you say, you're not sure who is. Um, you know, for us during yeah. the Gulf War, it was pretty simple. You you advance, you take it. Everybody in front of you, to be frank, is. is <laughs> you know deemed to be the enemy um yeah so yeah so that, so, so that was before. so that was the sort of the main thing um there was a lot of uncertainty because our training was very generic because we didn't know where we were going who would we we would be attached to and my squadron got um started off as four troops then amalgamated into two large troops then one one of those troops got split in two again and each of the troops got sent to a different place so um we didn't know where we were going until we got there. Um, but it, once you're there and once you start working, you sort of get into a routine, but it's the, it's probably the fear of the unknown. The, as, as an officer, my biggest concern was always bringing everybody back alive. And we had, um, we had a fa family's day before we went where um, all the families would come, we'd show them the kit and equipment we were using and one of the hardest things was having all the mothers take me to one to one side, one by one, you know, completely independently, and say, "Please make sure my son comes back home." And that that was when it really starts to weigh on you the responsibility of what you're about to do. And uh, yeah, so so it was it was fear of the unknown. And that desire to bring everybody back, those are the, the, the two things, I think. And like you say, with Sand, that's something that certainly Sanders can never prepare you for, that, no. <laughs> that worrying concern. No, absolutely not. No, it, and, and, and that's, that's when it really, it really hits home as well. So it, there's only so much training that you can do that's going to prepare you for that. And then the rest of it is just thinking on your feet, doing the right thing. Um, yeah. So fast forward in a bit. Um, so what, what made you want to leave then, Ben? What was the, the, the decision about um, leaving the army then? Um, there were a couple of reasons. I was, the the biggest one was, was um, the RTRs were merging. So when I joined, we had two RTRs, War War One and Two. Um, Come on, you boy. It was four, yeah, exactly. when I, four when I joined. <laughs> Um, so, so they were merging and I, I was of the rank, I was a junior captain, middling captain, looking to move into the ops officer adjutant sort of style roles. And I was with a cohort of very capable, very good people. One of the, one of the drawbacks to being in the RTR is everybody there is good. There's very, very rarely do you get people that aren't good. So you're you're looking around and there is eight people, same age as you, same rank, probably much better than you, and there's three jobs. And you know that you're not going to get one of those jobs. Had it been two regiments, there'd be six, seven jobs. But the number of jobs have been halved. And my distinct feeling was I don't want to be competing with my friends. I don't want to be, I don't want there to be any sort of 
sort of upset and drama about who gets what job. And I, I don't really want to go off and do a staff job. I don't want to do anything like that. And I've been very lucky up until that point. I bounced from tour to tour um, between the two regiments. And, um, and yeah, and it, it just felt, felt for me that the, the, the next time I would come back and lead troops was going to be, you know, eight, ten years away if it happened. Um, and as I said, I wasn't sure it would happen given the quality of the other people. So I was like, you know what? I think it's probably time I've, I've, I've found something else to do, but I, I'd had this idea for bare arms since before I joined the army. And so, and it, and it never gone away. And that was the point was like, it, it, I could, I make this happen. Is this something I still want? Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so it's sort of it's sort of the thing the thing that really the really the thing that actually made me sign off was my friend Rob. Rob and I met at university. Uh, we played rugby together, um, and uh, we ended up doing the same job together, which was working at the army officers selection board. And it's a weird and wonderful place. It's so odd. It's that little sort of capsule of of time and weirdness, and. Rob came in one day. We, we'd both started at pretty much the same time. I think Rob had, had beat me by a few weeks. Um, we both arrived there and there's only sort of a small handful of people there. And Rob came in and, and proudly stated that he'd signed off. And I'd been thinking about it. And I went, you know what? I'm going to do it as well. And so, so literally sat there and, and signed off. But it, 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 it always been sort of in the back of my mind. But I do remember being a brand new troop leader and there was a, a middling captain in terms of seniority uh, who had signed off and it was it was like he was like a prior in the mess he, no it wasn't that bad but it was almost like what are you doing why are you signing off that's ridiculous who would do that um but it shows you how much things had changed in sort of five years between between that and that so um so yeah so that's when i decided to take the plunge well, I suppose that brings us on perfectly to bare arms then, doesn't it, mm. really? So you said you had the idea before you, you yeah. joined the RTR. Um, yeah, just so for everybody, all of us, uh, so what is bare arms? What, what do you actually do? So bare arms is a uh, collection of people and services that um, work within the film and TV industry. Um, there are a lot of similarities between the military and the film world. Um, in terms of organisation and structure and how they run, and a lot of a lot of people after World War Two went and joined the film industry, and there are and similarities to filming on location to going away on an operation or exercise on tour. You still have to feed people, you have to uh, you have to get people in the right place at the right time. Lots of moving parts, lots of chaos, lots of changes, and so. Um, so that sort of that realization came after, but my original original reason why I wanted to join the film and TV is I just love film and TV. As as a kid, I remember age I must have been fourteen or fifteen recording films off the TV and watching them on VHS and thinking and be, having my mind blown by some of the the stories and some of the acting and the plot twists and just exciting me. And at university, so had so had the Twin Towers not happened, I don't know where I would be, but at university, when I was considering the army, um, the recruiting colonel 
said to me, you know, what's what's your plan B if if the army doesn't work out? Uh, and I said to him, I, you know, thinking about going into the films and being a stuntman. And he laughed at me. And I was like, no, I'm deadly serious. I, I want to go and do stuff like that. Um, and uh, I just, I just, it's, 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 it's I, th- I guess it is also having something to show as well. Something to be proud of and go, I, I was a small part in this. I helped create this. And so that sort of, being able to take pride in your work as well rather than i've got friends who work in banking and all sorts of jobs and it's they often say it's quite difficult to take pride in their work because it's numbers on a spreadsheet and they don't necessarily get the same kick out of it so it was at university um i was part of the otc the officer training corps and um they were taking us out on exercise um up in the scottish highlands and um they made us watch dog soldiers as <laughs> one of my top 10 favorites i have yeah. to say <laughs> they uh, they made us watch that in preparation for going out on the exercise and everybody was was sort of pointing at the screen saying they've got the wrong weapons uh, they're <laughs> doing the wrong things blah 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 and and it sort of got me thinking it's like who is is this a job does somebody does somebody do this does somebody help tv productions do this and um and then I found out about a guy called Dale Dye, who is a Vietnam veteran um, from the U.S. Marines, who you'll recognize if you see him. He's um, got white hair. He has a cameo in nearly every war film in the last 20 years. He was the advisor on Band of Brothers and things like that. And I, I was sort of like, that is a cool job. That is a kind of job I would want to do. And then I sort of came up with the idea. It was like, well, advising is one part of it. And that's... And that's um, a quite a quite a distinct part of it but then it's like well who provides all all the soldiers for these scenes as well who provides all the weapons who provides all the tanks who provides all of the vehicles the clothes and that's where the idea of bare arms started and then in between in between my first and my second tour um i got sent to to RAF Honington um uh to work with the CBRN regiment i did about 3 days of CBRN before uh the cbrn role got taken off the rtr and we got sent away on tour but um but while i was there i met an RAF officer um who was was reading soldier magazine and i took the piss and i said what are you reading that for i mean we don't even read that why are you reading that and he said well i'm i you know keeping up to date with all the weaponry because um i'm thinking about becoming a film armorer and I was like, "What? That, that's my idea." And so, uh, so that's how we met, and that's how we became friends. That's Al, who's my business partner. So he'd he'd been he'd been an extra on a few sets um, down where he lived in Cornwall uh, before he joined the the RAF. And he was he he had a similar sort of thought of like, "Who is it that does this as a job?" And so we both we both sort of had the idea independently, and then we met, and so thought we'd sort of team up. And that's and then, as all great ideas are, um, the name Bear Arms came to us while sat in a pub. And as some people have remarked, it does sound like a pub name. And there is actually a pub <laughs> around the corner for me called the Bearing Arms, which we had our Christmas party at once. Um, and so that's how it started. It was just this idea of finding transferable skills that we'd learned in the military and putting it into film and TV production, um, which which is quite quite broad in its scope. Um, but it's ultimately it comes down to 
productions needing help with with anything from coordinating a big battle to advice on a costume to helping write the language to make sure the language is correct um to helping coordinate vehicles um and it's just using the skills that we've learned in the military about organization command and control and putting it into the film and tv world and a lot of people from the military do join the film and tv world not necessarily doing doing advising and stuff like that but go into locations quite a lot of covid coordinators the the new job that's popped up in the last year which oh. is a covid coordinator who is somebody who essentially makes sure that everybody's following all the guidelines wow. and takes somebody with a, a good grip somebody like a sergeant major or a senior nco that can tell people oi get back wash your hands you know that discipline side of things so there's there's um yeah and it, there's a lot of similarities between the film and tv world and the military late 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 ends to the day early mornings eating food at a, from a truck or a container you know it's and it's so there's there's not a a big difference between the two but uh but so yeah so that's where it st- it started and that's what i now do which is bizarre Wow, it's and you employ some what ex veterans as well, then? Because I imagine, I mean, yeah. you need it's a wide scope of like I don't know, you need somebody mm. who was infantry trained or something to advise on certain aspects of it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so I, I, no one person can be the expert on absolutely everything. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, most of the stuff that we do, um, it's it's not actually a little bit about is about what you know. So sometimes you will require somebody who's who's uh, got that technical understanding. Difference if you're doing a film about su- su- submarines, you're going to want somebody who's been <laughs> on a submarine. Um, if you're just doing a generic film about World War Two, it doesn't really matter. It's more about unless there's something specific in there. It's more about um, what a soldier does, how a soldier sounds, how a soldier stands, things like that, which can be done by anybody really. Um, the biggest thing is about understanding what the requirements of everybody else on the film crew is. Um, a lot of people uh, think that advising is just telling them where it's wrong and where it's not, but actually it's far more subtle than that because it's not a documentary. So a lot of the things that somebody might pick up and go, well, that's wrong. They wouldn't have laced their boots like that in that time. It doesn't necessarily matter because you can't pick them up for everything because if you do they'll get really annoyed really quickly so you've got to choose (laughs) you've got to you've got to be able to read people very well and it's multi-departments there's there's um a costume department there's a directing department and so there may be a day where everybody's running around with their hair on fire and anything you say is not going to go down well so you've got to decide is this worth it? Is this worth stopping, putting a stick in the spokes of this production and stopping things to say, that's not quite correct? Is it going to matter at the end of the day? Most of the time, the the, the answer is no. So you've got to pick your battles and go with the thing that's going to make the biggest difference. Some productions are great because you get brought on really early and you can pick up these, these mistakes and errors and change them in the script stage other productions bring you on on the day and there's not a lot you can do sometimes to change things so um it it really varies depending on the production exactly what you do but um when it comes to specifics 
um, we have we have lots of different people with lots of different skill sets. So we'll bring in somebody specific. If we don't have somebody that's got that particular skill set, we'll bring them in. So um, we've got a number of different advisors from the RAF, the Navy, the commandos, anything like that. Um, we also um, put people on screen as well. So if they need soldiers for a particular scene, we bring in real soldiers to do that. Uh, we also bring in um, some younger actors who we've trained up as well, because we find that the best thing is to have a mix, have a mix of soldiers and young actors, because then the soldiers learn how to perform and learn acting from the actors, and the actors learn about being a soldier from the soldiers. So rather than having one or the other, you have a good mix and it tends to really work. Do you find the audience has changed? Because, I mean, our audience, like sort of the World of Tanks audience, it's very much, what's, what's two comparisons? I suppose the Battle of the Bulge is, is something which everybody rants and raves about the, you know, the worst film mm. ever made and, you know, <laughs> the wrong, wrong tanks and blah, 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 mm. um, compared to, I don't know, let's take something like, I don't know, Saving Private Ryan or something mm. like that, which is, now obviously a lot of that is technological advances in filming capabilities as well. Mm. But also, it seems that uh, maybe just the, the audience nowadays, they, they expect so much more from a detailing, you know, spot yeah. on perspective than perhaps they did, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I'd say that's definitely the case. I, I, I suggest there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, but primarily, it's probably games. Games like World, World of Tanks. Very yeah, 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 yeah. So, um People learn a lot about weaponry and about hardware from games. So if you look at films in the 1980s um, uh, and and you have films where actors run around with machine guns and fire off thousands of rounds without having to, <laughs> to reload. My favourite. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you, people know now that that's not real. People aren't, people aren't impressed by that now. People want more realism. And people have been exposed to guns through games. So people know that you, you normally only get 30 rounds before before you have the stoppage. So directors and, and and film people are starting to learn that they not only are is this expected, but they can use this to their advantage. Instead of, instead of having Arnie standing up completely invincible and spraying, you know, 40 or 50 guys who are tumbling over walls and getting blown up by grenades. Instead of having that as being entertaining and being slightly cartoony, what you can have now is sort of ultra realistic and you can have people in danger and you can have changes of, of tension because people have to stop and reload. There's some fantastic scenes where people are very intense scenes where people are moving through buildings. And again, this comes from, as you said, technology with filming. Um, you can now have a much steadier shot on the move and completely free of any tracks or rails where you used to not be able to do that. You have to have a fixed camera. So what you're able to put on screen has changed as well. What's, um, what's some of your favourites to date then that you've worked on or, or with? or Have you got any favourites? So things that I've worked on, I mean, it, it's it's difficult because the, there is often a bit of a disconnect between things that are enjoyable to film <laughs> and things that, that are enjoyable to watch. To watch, yeah, yeah, I appreciate so one, that. So one of, one of the most enjoyable things to film was a, was a TV show called The, uh, the Halcyon which was a very short-lived TV show. Nobody's ever watched it. It was- I've um, never heard of it. Exactly, exactly. It was, um, it was uh, one of our first jobs and it was, it was on the ITV, uh, the ITV. It was on ITV and it was about a hotel during World War II. Um, and it was made by the same people that made Downton Abbey. Uh, so it was sort of, it was supposed 
Upton Abbey. It was supposed to go for multiple series throughout the war. Um, and it never really took off. But as part of it, the son of the hotelier was a Spitfire pilot. Uh, and and I got... So, so Al and I were actually, we were in um, the Caribbean at the time on, on a sailing expedition, brilliant sailing expedition called Transglow. And we got a phone call um, from a friend of a friend saying, we are putting together this production. We need an airfield and some Spitfires. Um, can you can you sort that out for us? And we both looked at each other <laughs> and went, "Yes, I'm sure we can." Having never ever done that, and we then spent the next few weeks like frantically calling around, booking Spitfires, finding pilots, and all sorts of things. But then, the, the, and it, one of the most stressful periods of my life, trying to get all these Spitfires from different parts of the UK, and it was at the same time that Dunkirk was being filmed. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> was it Dunkirk? Yeah, same time as Dunkirk was being filmed so and and early era spitfires so anyone who's a plane nut will know that spitfires went through a number of different variants a number of different changes in, in cannons in color everything like that so the early spitfires tended to get converted into the older ones and so there aren't a lot of early spitfires around especially not flying ones and with dunkirk being filmed at the same time and I later on, I met the guy who was organizing the Spitfires for Dunkirk. And he said, we couldn't find any of them. We didn't know where they were. And it's because we had we'd been able to scoop them all up for this. Um, but having real Spitfires flying and one of the guys, there's a guy called um, Charlie Brown, who's a very famous, famous RAF Spitfire pilot, amazing moustache. He has a proper sort of super huge flying moustache, which must slow down the Spitfire. That's how wide it is. He he did an incredibly low pass over the, ca the camera crew. And film crews are fairly unflappable because they've seen everything a million times and they've seen it from a million different angles. And this is the only time I've seen a film crew like falling about, whooping and laughing because of how <laughs> amazing this thing was. And he flew it so low. And it was, it was, you felt like you could reach up and touch it and just the noise of the thing. So yeah, so that I... And that's always, always uh, going to be quite hard to top. Um, uh, but again, not not particularly something I would sit down and watch. Uh, there was a, there was another there was a there was a short film that we helped out with called The Burying Party, which was um, about Wilfred Owen, and um, they got a replica Mark IV tank. Uh, and they brought that on to set and the and the guys let me drive it and I got a little driving certificate for the Mark IV. So that was again brilliant day, great day. But it's not people expect you to say, you know, the time you worked on the Hollywood blockbuster or this or that. But no, it's these little moments where you get to do something amazing that you've ne never done. Those are the things that I find probably the best for. What's the future? I mean, we're on to sort of some of the questions from uh, from our audience, but what's mm. what's the future, do you think, like for film, TV at the moment due to yeah, the, the state of the world, the pandemic and everything? Well, it's interesting. I think it was going through a big change anyway, but the COVID has accelerated it and forced it to change. Um, do you still, I mean, you know, yeah. sorry, do you, I mean, yeah. forgive my ignorance. I mean, there obviously is filming going on as we speak. Yes. Yeah. Make... So there is, there is filming happening. Um, film has been, so there were film, there was, there were things that were filming uh, March last year when COVID happened and filming stopped. It literally ground to a halt overnight. Um, and 
a number of productions were thinking, I'll be back within two weeks, it'll be fine. And then when it when the sort of the scale of the pandemic became clear, everybody understood that actually it wouldn't be back as normal. So filming under covid conditions is interesting you've you've essentially got two options and it depends on the kind of project that you're doing option number one is that everybody isolates together and there were a couple of sort of leaders in this throughout the world who were who were filming under covid conditions first who were testing these theories out so the first one is everybody isolates together so you get the entire film crew they spend two weeks in isolation. They then travel to the place where they're filming. Mm. They remain as a crew for the duration of the shoot. They don't go outside the bubble. Food gets brought in. And and, and in some ways, that is that is easier to film because you don't have to change the way that you film. You've just got to be very good at planning. You can't bring in extra people. You're either on the film or you're not. You can't come onto it for a few days and then, and then leave. Um, but if you can do that, then it means what you're filming is a lot easier. Uh, the difficulty is you're then away from your family and everything like that. It's like being on a tour. You are away. The other option is that you isolate people into bubbles. So um, that if there is an infection or if there is an outbreak, it's in a particular bubble and you can and you can restrict how far it's gone. So you minimise you minimize the contact with the people who can't wear masks, who are the actors. So you minimize the contact with them, except down to a few people and everybody's tested. I mean, there are some productions, it's down to each production. Some productions are tested once a day. Some productions are tested twice a week. Um, it's completely up to the production. Um, but so, so by sort of September, the productions that had stopped were restarting. The problem is is entirely one of budgets and insurance. So filming under COVID conditions, if you have two identical projects, one that's done under COVID, one that's done before, the COVID production will probably cost 25 to 30% more wow. because of the additional staff you need, um, the cleaning that has to happen. So you have to, somebody has to build the set, the set has to be cleaned, then you, you leave time for the people to come onto the set. Um, because it slows down filming because you have to, you can't go as quickly. You have to leave gaps. So that means if you're a production company or if you're a film financier, you may have 20 productions that you could have done beforehand, but now you've only got the budget for maybe 15 of those because of how much more those 15 cost. Um, you then have the additional problem of where the money's been. So if we take, for instance, James Bond, James Bond costs a lot of money to make, a lot of money to advertise. And what that means is that that production company has a sort of a black hole on their balance sheet. Normally, you've got this constant rotation of spending the money of the, on the film, getting the film released, that money comes back in. So as you've got the balance sheet that's constantly going up and down. Because COVID has stopped a lot of films being released you've got these sort of 500 600 million pound black holes sat on the balance sheet and they can't release them because they know if they release them take james bond the reason why that's been delayed three or four times is because they know they can't possibly afford to release it on a streaming 
service, a streaming service, something like Netflix, will not be able to afford the amount of money it requires to break even for that film. So it would have had to have been a cinema for them to recoup and make profit and everything else. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it yeah. would have been that. So a lot of those big budget productions, um, those big sort of tentpole things like Marvel, Top Gun 2, James Bond, something that you really have to see on the big screen to appreciate those kind of things are not really happening as much as they would have done normally because they know that when cinemas do reopen, there's going to be a backlog of films that have been held mm. back that they need to release. Um, funnily enough, James Bond has had to do some reshoots in the past few months because the technology and the product placement, things like mobile phones and things that they originally recorded when they first started doing this two years ago are now out of date. So they've wow. got to go back. <laughs> they've got to go back and refilm James Bond using the latest Samsung phone or whatever it, <laughs> it is. Um, so there is there is there is financial implications for these things taking time to come out. But when you've got something like Top Gun 2 that you absolutely are going to have to see in the cinema. There's no point watching on a TV screen. Even though TV screens are getting better and better and larger and larger, that's a film for the cinema. That will be held until the cinemas are fully back open. So how how does this change? How does this change how films are made and, and, and how we watch them? It means that you're more likely to see TV series. So something that that traditionally would have been on tv now on a streaming service um but you it used to be the case that budgets for tv stuff was was, was far lower um, but now budgets for tv are getting higher and higher and higher because um people are more likely to sign up to netflix to watch a particular tv series than they are a particular film if it's like a suite of films something like the Star Wars collection, yes, yes, they might sign up to Disney Plus, but you're unlikely to do it for one film, whereas one TV show can have that pull. So how filming has changed and how film releases have changed, you're more likely to see stories that are easier to film under COVID conditions. So you're less likely to see big battle scenes um, simply because it takes too much to be able to get that number of people covid safe on screen the amount of cost for testing the amount of risk of an outbreak while they're there um it just makes things a lot harder so so i know of some tv shows that have rewritten scenes not to include massive battles and make things smaller and more manageable just to just to be able to get around that originally they pushed them to the back of the schedule because they thought covid will be done with within a you know six months but as this is dragged on they now know actually no we're going to have to really change things so um how it changes long term i think you're less likely to see films in cinemas and this was always going to happen but your 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 films that don't really require a cinema screen to watch your maybe your dramas or your your uh, um uh, comedy films that don't need to be seen on the big screen won't necessarily go and get a big screen release just because it, it does cost a lot so they'll be more on streaming which means that the number of big films there are won't change but it means that cinemas there'll probably be fewer of them 
but they will show films for longer. So instead of we, yeah. we before the pandemic, we had a, a thing where a film would come and go within a few weeks. Now you'll have your big tentpole productions that will sit in a sit, sit, cinema for a bit longer, maybe three or four weeks, in order to make that amount of money that they need to make. And those little ones that would normally only be on for two weeks or so, probably enough on streaming, I would think. Well, I, how do you are you worried about the future as far as you, you know your your company's concerned or no confident? No, not. Confident British British film and TV is going through a big boom. Um, it was at the start of the pandemic. It is now. Um, every month there's an announcement of another studio being built because there isn't enough space in the UK. So studio space in the UK is is going to double over the next three or four years. And then probably again beyond that, because the number of the number of streaming platforms there are, each of those streaming platforms has to make their own stuff to attract yeah, con- people to content, to content, yeah, content exactly. So that means there's going to be a a big glut of stuff that needs to be filmed. That won't last. That'll that'll be a a, a bubble, not a bubble. That'll be a that'll peak and then come down again because there are now. I'd say probably at the drop of that, there's probably 20 streaming services you can sign up to. As a family, you're not going to sign up to all 20. You're going to probably sign up to three or four. So it means that depending on how generous you are with your kids. So it now means that the the, the services that are, that are not getting the good enough material um, to get people interested in them or perhaps aren't niche enough. You, you might have a horror channel for instance, or a science fiction one. Those ones that aren't doing anything different will fall off the bottom. They'll get bought out. All their content will be bought out. So the number of them is probably at, probably at its maximum. And that you, you might see that come down again over the next few years, but people are, people are wanting more and more stuff to watch. Um, so, and Britain, since since the late nineties, Britain has been a really good place to film because of um, tax breaks. So the British uh, British government has always given pretty good tax breaks for films coming over here to film. Oh, okay. Which is which is w- back in the nineties, the British film and industry was was pretty small. Um, it it had been relying on homegrown films such as Four Weddings and a Funeral stuff like that but everything big was made elsewhere um i think it was gordon brown originally that brought in the tax breaks and and bigger bigger budget production started to go actually it's it, we can film the same thing in the uk and it's cheaper so um harry potter got filmed in the uk uh star wars got filmed in the uk lots of big tentpole productions came to the UK and the UK very quickly got a very good reputation for having the technical people behind the cameras to be able to do the kind of stuff and a lot of post-production studios in London, lots of VFX productions all based in the UK. So now it may be cheaper to film elsewhere, but the UK still has a very high standard of film production and also the places to do it. More and more studios are being built every day. So, um, Places like Pinewood and Leavesden are expanding. Um, so no, I, I'm I'm confident, very very confident. Um, COVID aside, it's a great time for the film and TV industry. Brilliant. 
Ben, thank you so much. We are dramatically running out of time. I just wanted to uh, finish off, actually, with a message I received from uh, from a sergeant, obviously. I won't say his name. You can say his name if you want to, but I won't. He passes on his best wishes. He says, please pass my <laughs> best wishes to Ben and says, and I quote here, that Alf can still <laughs> More than him, no matter how manly his beard looks. <laughs> Obviously, that means something to you. <laughs> so this this is from one of my one of my old guys from my troop, and I would I'd, I'd like to have a big shout out to all of my troop um, from my first tour. A bunch of brilliant lads, all of them, and um, it's the ten year ten ten year anniversary. So ten years ago, now we were on tour. Uh, and I uh, love them all to bits. And as I said, one of the hardest things was 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 coming to terms with the fact that we might not bring them all back. Luckily, all of my guys came back relatively unscathed. Um, you know, there's all sorts of problems that come out later on in life, but a really good bunch of lads. And this, this guy um, was a big source of support for me. Uh, so Coxie, wherever you are, hope you're well. <laughs> Uh, and um, I've told them off air your story about uh, about your special party trick, but we'll uh, <laughs> and we're not allowed to mention that. We're not allowed to mention that. <laughs> rather, rather X rated, but yeah, big shout out to all of the, the, those guys. Brilliant, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I wholeheartedly wish you all the best for the future. I hope everything goes well. Um, we're always looking forward. We've got a lot of time on our hands at the moment, so we're looking forward to more TV and film. Um, so that'd be fantastic. And for everybody listening in, thank you very much for joining us. And please join me next time for the next episode of Tank Nuts. Bye.